Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey guys, I just wanted to thank you all for all of the wonderful feedback, all of the time, uh, uh, all of the suggestions, um, the constructive uh, criticism, and letting me know when there's re- reporting any like sound issues or app issues, anything like that. Um, as a stand-up comedian, um, we have a lot of our stuff out. I have a lot of my stuff online, and and anytime you put an act on YouTube, you can go on any comedians, any, any, pick your favorite comedian and go to their YouTube videos and then read the, uh, horrendous comments that, uh, that trolls leave on, uh, on, on YouTube. And it's, it's a, you get used to it. It's, it's very discouraging, um, in the beginning, but you get used to it. And, uh, you know, it's not something that I take all that seriously, but it, it's the norm. It is the norm in the internet culture. And this podcast is way outside the norm. All, all of the, um, comments that I get from you guys. I mean, I, I get comments every day, people sending me messages telling me that, the podcast has changed their life and they look at the world differently and um, on and on just amazing um, glowing reviews on iTunes, all that stuff. I really, really appreciate it. And I try to take all of them seriously. So please keep them coming. It gives me, um, gives me the uh, optimism and enthusiasm to keep pushing forward on this very challenging um, project. Uh, and speaking of challenging, one of the challenging things is those um, charity episodes that I've been trying out. I, I liked the one last week a lot. I think that was the fifth one. Um, and I, I'm i not sure what I'm doing with it exactly. I'm just kind of interested. I'm following my own interests a little bit, but it's definitely not exactly the point of the show. Um, and so I, you know, I asked you guys for feedback early on and to tell me what you thought about that. I did get someone on Twitter. They weren't complaining or anything, but they were like, um, I guess all of these are going to be bummers or something like that. 
And uh, yeah, pro- probably when, when I'm talking with these nonprofits that are addressing um, these big issues that are kind of troubling for humanity. Um, yeah, it is, it's going to be a bit more of a bummer, but, um, duly noted. And if, if you, if you're a person that thinks the charity episodes are your favorite ones, let me know and maybe I can make more of them, but I think I will probably back off a little bit. It's been, it's a little bit of an experiment and they're just, it, it adds so much more work to what I do. And I'm not sure, um, if it's the payoff, I, I haven't gotten enough feedback from you guys, um, to see if, if there's a real payoff for all the listeners um, for doing it. I, I want, uh, I want, I mean, I do this for myself as well, but obviously I want, you guys are objective listeners and you, you probably in many circumstances have a better sense of, um, uh, of how the show is going and what's working and what's not than I do. Um, it's just a different thing being in the moment, um, and doing these interviews. So I very much take your comments seriously, as I said. And so I'm, I think I'm maybe going to do shoot for like doing one every three months or something like that, maybe like four a year. And, um, there, there are some really cool organizations I still want to get. Um, uh, I better not say, um, until I've lined them up, but, um, you know, there's some things like drug policies and stuff like that, that people work on kind of like the last episode, um, that I think would be really interesting. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just an update with that. I know this is a little long winded, but, um, one, I wanted to let you know, um, some slight changes in, uh, uh, in the show and to just to thank you very much for all of the feedback, write me as often as, as you want guys, any suggestions for guests or anything like that, any topics, um, uh, I, I might not be able to get to them right away, but I have uh, a big list of a whole bunch of people with a bunch of different topics that I'm interested in all around the country. And so it just kind of depends on timing and when I get to them. But, um, but anyway, keep the feedback coming in. Thank you so much. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have research scientist affiliated with the Department of Anthropology at UCLA, Colin Holbrook. Hello, Colin. How are you? Very good, and thank you for having me on your excellent podcast. Thanks for joining me. You're a research scientist. What does that mean? Well, it essentially means that I don't have to teach, at least not right now, because I'm not on a tenure track at this point. I'm supported by grants that... Um, not only allow me, but require me um, to spend my time focusing on research. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Do, do you do you not like teaching? <laughs> I, I love teaching. And that's true. That's not just, you know, what right. I'm supposed to say or yeah, latitude. Yeah. I, I love teaching. I love research more. Right. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think in my perfect world, I would have 
the odd garnish of teaching. Um, but the main course will always be re- um, the focus on, on, on research. I think I like the research aspect more, too. I have this podcast, so I, I mean, I do like working all the science into my material and having this podcast and everything. But also this is um, kind of a trick for me to learn stuff that I have questions about more, more than, well, I don't know, more than I like the idea of educating the public or whatever. That's also important to me, but I like learning on my own. more. No, than and I, I'm interested in this, and this may be a, a good um, pairing that we have here because I actually do a lot of teaching, albeit not in, in, in the, the traditional sense of, you know, here's Psych 101 or something like this. But I work with a large group of research assistants and an unusually large group um, in, in concert with a few of my colleagues. We've got this kind of research consortium that has this lab um, made up of about 25 um, undergraduates and some graduate people um, and some people who aren't even students at all, but or just have a great aptitude for research. Mm. And so working with 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 this group of highly motivated, highly intelligent, mostly students, um, I get to talk about the research stuff, um, give them a grounding in research methods, and kind of have the best of both worlds. So I get a lot of contact and pedagogy, but it's always in the end about um, advancing a research program, which is why some of the stuff that I think we'll end up talking about today wouldn't have been possible without this veritable army. And yeah. so I really want to give um, acknowledge and, and, and give gratitude to them because um, one of the things that I do in my research, for example, is try to get a more diverse sample than you often see. And most of my research would fall under the, the category of social psychology, which very often uses what are called convenient samples, which is like the psych pool. Um, in most universities, students are required to go do a certain number of experiments or studies in order mm-hmm. to graduate. So they have a bit of a gun to their head. There's nothing wrong with a psych pool. Um, I one day hope to have access to one myself. But one um, potential drawback is that you end up with a very thin slice of the population. You get, you know, relatively high socioeconomic status, relatively highly educated people in a very narrow and very weird in terms of the developmental like life history story, a very weird part of our life, you know, late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on your research question, it could be pretty shaky to say you've learned something about the human mind or even about your society on the basis of, you know, Heather, who's right, 21 right. and loves psychology and had to come take a, a lab study. So with the help of all of these research assistants, we can go canvas the community um, and get hundreds of people who maybe never went to college, maybe they're blue collar, maybe... They're older, maybe they're a, a much more diverse range of, of ethnic and racial groups, which I think is a real um, strength. Yeah, that is. So it's like more of a think tank-ish sort of well, thing? It's, I it's, mean, it's, you're still doing research. Well, I should, I should say, I've been working with the person who um, brought me on as a postdoc, Dan Fessler, mm-hmm. who's at UCLA, and it's Fessler Lab. Um, but he's been extremely generous, and over the years, our collaboration has been such um, that he's always been extremely encouraging of um, me pursuing independent research ideas and initiatives and giving me access to the lab. And I mean, and for one thing, when you have that many students and you can do research on that scale, you kind of need grist from the machine. So it's also been a mutualism in that, you know, he doesn't always have a project up at bat. But uh-huh. I, so between us, though, we always have something for them to go do. Very cool. Yeah. Well, if you ever need a um, somewhat unreliable comedian um, <laughs> as part of this, let me know. Um, so 
So you do a lot of work with um, with threat perception, yeah. right? Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, I work in a, what you might politely call a eclectic range of topics. Um, but what and, and but what I mean by that is that they're quite varied. Um, but what brings them all together is a concern with how we reason about threat and how being threatened influences important judgments, especially judgments related to bias. And by threat, I mean, I'm interested in a number of different domains of threat. So that could be the threat of um, interpersonal violence, the threat of, um, of death from disease or injury, or also interested in threats to children. Um, this is a highly understudied topic is how does becoming a parent actually recalibrate your mind and brain to be more sensitive to particular potential threats to your, to your children. And how does that change the way you respond? My mom says it produces lots of gray hairs. So that's a very common adage. Well, this thing, a there's, pod- a, there's some sort of biological mechanism in kids. Well, you can tell your mom that <laughs> I would take any of her gray hairs that she cares to share. Cause in me, it's caused to have uh, no hair. So. <laughs> Fair enough. So, you know, she should, she should be grateful for whatever hair she's got. Um, so I, I cut you off. You're talking about your eclectic, um, well, interests. Right. And, and we'll give, we'll, um, I hope to talk about some of the concrete examples, um, yeah. that kind of illustrate this, but when general, what I study is how does being threatened, um, often in unconscious ways, change your social perceptions and your sort of moral judgments as well. Um, so I could give an example right now. Yeah. A, a recent paper was building on a number of years of research that is trying to understand how people quickly and sort of accurately reason about whether to fight or whether to run away or whether to negotiate. Um, and the idea being that this is an ancient problem and this is an extremely important challenge for fitness. Mm. If you make the wrong decision, there can be dire consequences on either side. So it's not always the best thing to avoid a fight. Going back to the example of parents, I mean, if there's times when you need to fight um, on behalf of your children or, or even on behalf of other relatives and things like this, um, not just for the direct sort of genetic fitness uh, consequences that may ensue, but also in terms of your reputation, because we're embedded in societies. And um, for men and for women, there are specific costs to backing down consistently. In fact, if you do this, um, you're more likely to be um, preyed upon. Yeah, you're a pushover. Right, right. Yeah. And so it's when you when you first when I first introduced this question, it might not seem all that complicated. You know, should I fight? Should I flee? Should I try to talk it out with this person? It's it's funny but, how how seldom um people put that third option of negotiating right, there. it's right. like fight or flight oh yeah i can actually talk this out maybe right right i'm that, using every bit of, third option i'm using every bit of willpower not to introduce this political tangent but i'm not gonna right okay so um let's say that's what conventions are for and leave it at that okay right. so um so this is actually a very complex problem um and the reason it's complex is that in in modern human societies, and in fact, in ancestral human societies, there was a sort of dizzying array of variables to consider. And I'll just throw out a couple sort of willy-nilly. Um, do you have friends nearby? Do that, does your opponent have friends nearby? Do, do you or they have martial training that might make a difference? Do you have mental or physical incapacities at this moment? You know, someone have a bum leg? Do they have 
they don't see so well out of their left eye is your arm in a cast or something um, this is grade school <laughs> sure sure i mean did you have access to weaponry yeah. it could be a rock in right. today's world it could be a stun gun it could be an act of you know a handgun um are, are you knowledgeable of the terrain so you know do you know places to hide or or might they are you in their home territory and might they have resources such as weapons or friends secreted nearby in a place that you don't know about and if you're not familiar with the area you may not have the option of escaping later if it's the fight starts going bad hence the cost to you are greater to engage in it hmm. and on and on i mean i could really keep going it gets it gets, it gets really, it's almost awe-inspiring how many factors need to be taken into account to make this decision, which is I, interesting given you have to make it quickly in many real-world contexts. Yeah, it's a, you know, I, I guess I'd never thought of this before, and this might be a distraction from is a, your research specifically, but it's, um, you, you mentioned, do you know this area well? And it reminds me of uh, this, this uh, girl that I'm seeing, I, I went to one of her friends house with her and then i was walking back to her place at night and i like it was not a good area and i was like you do this regularly you just walk late at night <laughs> regularly mm -hmm. after some drinks this is not don't do that anymore get an uber or something but it's interesting that I'm not used to the area and that's how, and I'm usually not a person that, uh, I, I don't scare too easily. Um, but it's interesting that possibly being used to an area, you have that much more confidence. Right. And there's so, there's so many of these variables that you may not, in this case, you were quite, um, consciously aware and able to counsel your friend and say, you know, I detect a problem here. Yeah. You're not doing a risk assessment correctly. Um, but Again, going back to the point about how like sort of fluid and quickly this decision has to often be made, mm -hmm. you are probably drawing on representations in your mind of a number of these factors um, that you aren't even aware of. And actually, I'll make it even more complicated. I've had these experiences in the past. Yeah. And uh, how did that pan out? Yeah. And um, another thing to consider is relative cost, which I think I alluded to a minute ago, but I'll, I'll unpack that a little more. So... You could have two people who are evenly matched. They have the same, let's make it fun and say they have nunchucks. Yeah, you know, sure. Like Bob versus it, it, Rob. You know, this is just, this is every day of my life. It's just yeah. me with nunchucks and another guy who is also tall and lanky with nunchucks. And yeah. then we have to sort that out. But you're from Wisconsin, right? <laughs> yeah. So he's from, let's say, Minnesota. So you have this whole thing. Right. Um, is that true, by the way? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's okay. uh, the Vikings. Uh, screw yeah. those guys. And no, the right. Packers are the bad ones. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's take that. <laughs> let's take that example. Um, okay. But we'll introduce one difference between these two otherwise well-matched um, adversaries, which is that one of them has $100 in his pocket okay. and can't really afford to lose that money because he needs it. So they're equally broke. Or let's say one of them, the condom broke, and the other one it didn't. And so one of these you know, pugilistic bros has a kid. Mm. And, <laughs> and this really matters. Because Guys with nunchucks don't wear condoms, by the way. <laughs> but go on. I'm going to defer to your expertise on that. Um, but and, and I, I, mean, I say that in a somewhat glib way. But I mean, but yeah. but say you say we're talking, in and in in I could actually segue into a study. Um, one of the studies that did a few years ago. Say you're um, a mom, um, mm. 
and you're in the presence of of one of your children or even of a neighbor's kid and it's your responsibility to protect them suddenly the costs of engaging in in the fight have scaled way up suddenly if you lose this fight if you come to harm the child could come to harm mm. also the very fact that you have to keep an eye on the child is an impediment to you during the fight which is a, another issue to consider on top of the costs if the child is harmed also if you're a parent um then the cost to you of being severely injured or killed in terms of your reproductive fitness are so much greater and, and that you've already invested um, a lot of resources and time in, in the child. And to speak more like a human being, you also want to be there for your child um, at the more proximate level of our feelings. So how do things like uh, the personal stakes, so parenthood being for me the paradigmatic example because I'm a new parent, mm -hmm. um, but even um, other research has involved things like women who are closer to fertility, who say, take the example of your friend walking these dark streets alone sometimes right. after, you know, drinking and so on. Um, th these kinds of people might be preyed upon as for, for, for rape and, for, and coercive sexual assault. And that should always be extremely threatening. Right. But when fertile, there's the added potential cost of an unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. Keeping in mind that in the, environment in which these uh, representations are hypothesized to have evolved, there was no birth control, there was no abortion. Well, mm. there was infanticide, but you don't want to get pregnant, you know, right. against your will. Yeah, ever. this is, and, and, um, and you were referred by my friend Marty Hazelton, who, yes. who does a lot of this kind of ovulation research. Right, and, and so, um, okay, so I'm going to real quick, it's funny how a conversation unfolds. I hadn't intended to start with either of these studies, but no. I'm going to real quick talk about parenting and then talk about fertility as illustrations of this formidability assessment um, process. So we did a study. Oh, one more thing to set the stage. So how do people make this decision how, quickly? Yeah. It's, uh, and well, it's also the idea of like people hear about mom strength or whatever, where all of a sudden they can like pick up a car or, or like if lift they have a fridge to, if, if they, they have, have to. to, if they have um, to. Yeah. And is there, have I seen stuff about, or is this your work? The pain tolerance goes up. When you know, I, I haven't done that. Um, my partner Jennifer Han Holbrook, who um, I think you'll be speaking to on another podcast, mm. um, has done work related to this, showing an effect of breastfeeding on becoming more defensively aggressive when challenged. That's what it was. I was looking. And for so work. I'll let her explain that yeah, in more yeah. detail. But I'll just say I hear I'm focusing on a situation where it would be better to not. Um, it'd be more adaptive to all things being equal to avoid the fight. Um, as opposed to a situation where you're already being attacked and sort of it's on as it were. Um, so, okay. So I'm going to give a, so let's talk about how the decision is made. And then I'm going to give two quick examples um, from parenting and from fertility um, from some of recent research. The argument that I and my collaborators, um, chiefly Dan Fessler at UCLA, but also a number of other people have made, um, I should say I'm very happy to see is starting to be replicated in, la in other research labs, even in you know, Spain and other countries and things like this, um, is that because physical size and strength are really important determinants of who wins in hand-to-hand -hand combat, mm -hmm. and indeed, in, um, if you go down the phylogenetic tree to our other ancestors who didn't have access to things like weapons or maybe not so much allies and things like this, it was the primary determinant. Um, leaving aside factors like age or illness, pretty much the bigger, stronger, 
animal was likely to win if it came down to a violent fight. Mm. Well, the argument is that this would be an extremely efficient kind of heuristic way to think about and summarize all of these complex variables that I've just enumerated. And, and so by a summary variable, I just mean something as simple as this. So I'm in an unfamiliar place, you know, minus one for my formidability, but I have a nunchuck plus two, but they have friends minus four, mm-hmm. something like along these lines. And you can do research to find out exactly what those numbers should be and how they should be weighted. But the point is that there's this running sum and it's the relative likelihood of winning and without being too severely injured in a violent conflict between oneself and an opponent. Um, and in this quick and dirty way, just as a, as a representation of size and strength. So as it, as if there was, and I'm speaking a bit loosely here, but as if there was a picture in your mind of like a little person that, um, most of our, our, of our research has concerned, um, male potential violence, but there's some research showing women too. So a little man or a little woman who is shrinking or growing and growing less muscular or more muscular, mm-hmm. um, depending on how formidable they are. In fact, in our language, it can be confusing to even distinguish size from formidability because it's so intuitive. Hmm. When I say formidability, you think I mean a big, strong person, or I, or I think you think I mean that, but that's not the case. You know, uh, what, what was the, the saying about Smith and Wesson or, or Winchester? You know, God made man and Winchester made them equal or something like that. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, I'm getting this quote wrong, but it makes the point that especially in, in modern societies, there's all kinds of factors that have nothing to do with being big and strong that can make you a lethal, you know, very dangerous person. Um, and yet we still associate the capacity to inflict harm with being big and strong and and. So I've just now sort of stressed the deep evolutionary history of this. But you can also say that during development, you know, we're we're held as as babies. Our parents can, you know, get their way. We're not going to be able to, you know, if it comes down to to, um, uh, fisticuffs with with your dad and you're two months old, you know, or, or three years old or five years old. Well, and then, I mean, I mentioned grade school earlier, but it's like the the huge swing in size differences between someone who's six months older than you, but is in the same class or or whatever, you know, that that is obviously going to be physically dominant. Right. Um, And so and so that we learn that. So and and, um, the way I think of that is, is it at minimum reinforces it or perhaps it even recapitulates the fact that even across evolutionary history, we should have. and in an evolutionary psychology sense, learned, quote unquote, mm. which is to say, have some sort of preparedness to think about relative formidability in terms of size and strength. Um, and, 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 and that's, that's the basic hypothesis, which has been dubbed the formidability representation hypothesis, which is just that, that relative threat in these situations of potential um, conflict draws on this kind of metaphor of a, of a of relative size and strength as a way of summarizing all this complex information and then deciding quickly, you know, what should I do? Fight, flee, negotiate. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this might be, uh, again, going off on a bit of a tangent, but I, I happen to believe in simulation theory. I, I think that our brains are running these simulations all the time. I think that my brain is simulating how these words that I'm saying right now are going to work out and projecting into the future. 
um, which might seem like a lot for the brain to handle. But if if that is the case, I, I do think that there it doesn't seem very unreasonable that there would be this very flexible little man in your head that's kind of pitting uh, you put your pit your sense of self against this situation or other person. Sure. And, and indeed, your own um, it's, it's a lot easier to measure the 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 size and strength that one imagines other people to have. If I ask you how tall you are and how much you weigh and how much you can bench, you're going to tell me numbers that are maybe you're exaggerating, but they're probably going to be basically pretty, yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. Um, because there's an objective fact of the matter. But mm. some of our research has actually shown that you can even modulate people's self-perceptions, their subjective sort of feeling of how big they are, if you make it ambiguous, um, in ways that also seem to reflect feeling relatively more formidable. Um, like, like how? Well, okay. So actually this is, we're opening up too many, we got to start closing. No, some yeah, stuff let's, let's so close I, some I'm going to close a couple things down. You, and then you, I'll go you, that. you drive this. There's this too, well, the problem is there's too much, there's, there's too many of these studies and, and they're all your babies and you want to talk about them all. Yeah. Okay, I got so, it. I, okay. So we put on the table, this notion that this complex decision is made by imagining or representing oneself and one's potential opponent is relatively bigger or smaller. Okay. Now let's plug it into some of these, um, some of these illustrations and I'll just give some really quick examples. So one of the first studies that was sort of a proof of concept was, well, does having a weapon change the imagined size and strength um, of a person Hmm. in a couple studies, a very robust effect of showing them owning uh, or in possession of a handgun relative to other objects that were sort of comparably what you might call masculine or something like power tools and hand saws and things like that. Um, the study was framed as about your ability to gauge just from images of a hand. And we said that these familiar objects were placed in their hands to provide a sense of scale. Um, and all of my research, actually, I, I very rarely use deception. I think it's wildly overused, but misdirection is sometimes necessary. Um, and this was a case of that. And so of Perhaps unsurprisingly, people said people imagined the the hand holding the lethal gun as belonging to a bigger, stronger man. But a reviewer, you know, it's not always the case that reviewers make really solid points. But in this case, this reviewer made a very fair point, which was this is a Rambo effect. People watch action movies; they're just mm. imagining like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. So what we did next was um, ran a study of a bunch of objects which were lethal and picked the one that was most associated with femininity. And this was a kitchen knife because women are, um, you know, there are exceptions. There's Brienne of Tarth and so on, but, but on average women are, are physically smaller. Um, so we, and this time we, we, we ran a, a study Is in which. Is that a Graham of Thrones reference you dropped it might have for been. me? Um, it might've just came wonderful. out. Wonderful. Um, so, <laughs> so, and, and sure enough, the effect replicated again. So, um, a hand holding a kitchen knife and ostensibly, you know, an object associated with the kitchen and according to our own, you know, results, people associated this as a feminine object. So it was quite striking that yet again, people thought of the person holding that kitchen knife as physically stronger. Um, and in a, in a follow-up kind of study. Wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Physically larger and stronger. Yeah. Holding the kitchen knife? They were physically. I, well, picture cropped hands. Okay. So, you, so if you're a participant, you're just seeing a little box with a series of hands holding an, a familiar object. Yeah. A coffee cup, a paintbrush, right. a tool, things like this. 
But when we, instead of using a gun, we decided to use a kitchen knife because this didn't have the Rambo problem. Oh, oh, I see. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. and, and yet it replicated once again. So that was sort of a proof of concept. There is something to this notion. Now it's time to further articulate the model and provide more evidence of this summary effect where both conscious and unconscious determinants of the costs or the relative um, chances you have in a fight influencing this sort of modulating up and down this representation of size and strength. Mm. So finally we'll skip, do the parents example I've been trying to get to for like forever. Uh, so <laughs> I think this, this is because again, I did this study before I became a parent, but it's especially meaningful to me now um, having a two year old. We asked participants who were matched for things like relationship status, politics, um, age, um, education. We tried to make them as similar as possible, but differing only in whether they had children or not mm -hmm. to prevent sample bias kind of things. And uh, we asked them to imagine a scenario in which they were walking through this really spooky, dark parking lot, very much like your real life experience mm -hmm. with your friend. Right. Um, it's, it's, I won't go through the whole thing, but it's, it's effective. If I were to read it to you now, you would probably get the willies a little bit. Mm. Um, it describes the scenario in which you're walking from a hospital at night to the parking lot. You decide ill-advisedly perhaps to take a, a shortcut through these woods and the, you can barely see the, the dim moonlight. It's uh, like a quarter moon or something. And there's thick bram brambles, which was intended to give the, the sense that you could trip over a root. You can't see where you're going. There's no one around, but there's one other car and it's parked right next to yours. And then you hear footfalls. And it's a sort of increasingly menacing circumstance. You, there's a man, you can't quite see him. Then he's coming towards you at the end. You're fumbling for your keys. It's, it's, it works. It's scary. You brought in Stephen King for this project. A bit, a bit. Well, yeah, I mean, we <laughs> modified a pre-existing uh, measure, but it was a fun creative writing uh, task yeah. to create this sort of chilling scenario. And, and the, our research question was, does being a parent matter? Period. So do parents, and if there are other differences, you know, between the parent sample and the non-parent sample, let's control for those. And we did, does being a parent make you more likely to imagine the menacing man is even more menacing and even bigger and even stronger because of the greater cost because you have so much more to lose. And because as a parent, you need to have a sort of pessimistic risk assessment. You need to stop doing jackass things. You know, you have a reason to stay safe and, and, and continue to be around to take care of your children and to avoid potentially costly violence. There's a conflict. little you who's even more important than you. Oh, very much so. <laughs> very much so. And so, I mean, I wouldn't probably be going into such depth and be getting so excited about the study if it hadn't produced such striking results, which was sure enough, the parents did imagine um, this menacing figure is significantly bigger and stronger. Mm. And, but we did another thing in the study as well, which was we just, we had a, a condition in the vignette in which you're walking alone and a condition in which you're walking with a child. And there was a sort of stepwise relationship where, um, so even, so let's look just at single or people who not single, but non-parents um, and non-parents that when they imagined walking with a child, the menacing man got bigger and stronger mm. than when they were walking alone. Now in parents, just imagining having, this is all, this is okay. all right. pretend time. Yep. Um, but again, it's a, it's easy pretend time because it was pretty well-written, scary scenario. Right. Now in, within the parents group, same thing, parents who imagine walking alone, 
imagined this menacing figure to be smaller and weaker than parents who imagined had the child being present. And if you look at them all together, so we have four groups, you know, parents, non-parents, and child present, no child present. And you see that uh, parents who imagine walking by themselves imagined the figure to be the same size as non-parents who imagined having a child, which almost, and now this is going beyond the research and getting into something a bit poetic maybe, but it's almost as if the parents, even imagining being alone, on some level, the child was in the background. Mm. Um, whereas the non-parents, when you overtly put a child into their awareness, they start looking like parents. Right, right. You see what I mean in this kind of step? Yeah, yeah. And so, and that's, that's um, mm. I think, a, a, a remarkable um, illustration of this effect. But again, another reviewer who oddly enough made a fair point um, said, well, this is pretend time. And you even brought that up sort of spontaneously. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a follow-up study, we went to a farmer's market. And this is an example where having all of these research assistants who are so capable is really helpful. Um, the sort of army of research assistants went to farmer's markets around L.A. and approached, ideally we would have approached moms and dads with their kids. It turned out that the fact of the distribution of the world was such that there were very few dads. Right. And so the sample ended up being about moms. So step it up, dads. Come yeah, on. I, well, <laughs> it's true. I mean, I've taken my child around a lot. Uh, shout out to Max. Um, but I don't think I've taken him to a farmer's market, so I guess I'm guilty <laughs> as well. Um, anyway, so in this study, they're looking at moms who are just with or without kids. Um, and then we could find we found out their their maternal status by asking them in the survey at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so they read now instead of the creepy vignette. We had them rate images of a, of a menacing looking figure who we had cropped so that you couldn't see his bodily characteristics. This is important because it's also showing a kind of convergent result because you don't want to build to put too much confidence in any one measure. So it could be there's something just really special about the parking lot vignette, which enables you to produce results consistently in published papers, but which if your if your effects only work with very well worked out dependent measures. If your methods are that important, then that calls into question the, um, the robustness of the psychological reality of what you're talking about. So, so that was why we used a different kind of measure. So now it's just sort of a, um, angry male face described, I believe as a criminal. Um, and sure enough, just having the children present led these mothers to estimate this person to be more dangerous, larger, stronger. Um, so there's, so there's another example, um, again, we didn't actually bring an ambiguous figure and that would be ethically dubious, but this was the real world in the sense that we were only looking at whether the child was there or not. Um, and we saw the same effect. Okay. So that's parenthood and a follow-up study, which I can describe really quickly. Um, we were interested in this fertility question and this was inspired by Marty's research, Marty Hazelton, you mentioned, um, and she's shown a number of ways that being fertile can can change the way women think and behave and usually in very small, but immeasurable and, and it's somewhat controversial research, but I'm willing to go on record as saying, I think it's real because mm-hmm. um, there's been some recent meta analyses that seem to show that, you know, there aren't file drawer effects and so on. It seems to be a real phenomenon, but so they're, they're not huge, but there's a priming real. involved. Well, and, and it's, what's fascinating about this from our this formidability research is that this is quite unconscious. I don't think these women are 
leave, you know, leaving their house thinking, well, I'm fertile today. I better be extra cautious Yeah, or extra anything. I don't think that's I, the case. I better be attracted to a more alpha male kind of man. Or something right, like right. That. Getting into that research right. or any of that stuff. Um, and it was an open question to what extent such as what you might consider a low level somatic process um, could also be taken into this algorithm and also influence judgment. So we didn't know what kind of sample size to get. And we knew that these effects are really small, even in very controlled lab situations. And somewhat for practical reasons, we kind of had to go to a field study because we just, it would have taken ages to bring people into the lab. And we weren't, my lab wasn't really set up to do this kind of research on menstrual cycle effects. So what we did was we just did like, you know, brute force power. And we recruited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women on the street and asked them, um, I won't go into the weeds of how we did it, but we, we got a sort of estimate of when their cycle might be. And we also asked, we gave them tampons. That, that, with, well, now uh, I want to know how you well, It seems like a little bit of an awkward conversation. Well, I'm well, for, one th for one thing, we only allowed female uh, or women RAs in the lab to do this. Oh, okay. Because be, yeah. every time I approach women and right. ask them about no, when they're have, ovulating. We have men, men uh, research assistants and, you know, we gave them other things to do. That <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't put them through that and we right. certainly wouldn't put our participants through that right, right. weirdness. Um, of course. But what we did was, um, I thought one of the funner things that we have, have done just because we were thinking, how do we, ideally we would get feedback from the women to confirm when their period actually came. So we could be using that information. We could make a better estimate of how fertile they were on the day that we met them on the street. Mm -hmm. And so one of the solutions that we came up with was to put an email address printed on special colorful tampons that we gave them if they wanted to put in their purse. And then next time or, or to put wherever they wanted, but we gave it to them on the day and then, they could pull Here it out. You go. You can put this wherever you can yeah, put you this said, you on said wherever that. you want. I really walked right into All that. Right. Okay. So uh, I'm a any, comedian. You have okay, to be a little careful. Right. No. All right. So, but at any rate, um, that was one way of, of getting it. And, and, and many women were very cooperative and they emailed back and said, you know, it happened. This is the day. Mm. And so we were able to make, um, this isn't the best practice. The best practice is to get to collect urine and, and right, to actually right, right. do an, an assay and find out how fertile they are. Even on, more of an awkward conversation. Right. Can someone. you pee on the stick now? Yeah. No, we didn't do that. Um, but even but we, we decided to compensate for the inherent noise in the way we were measuring it mm -hmm. um, by having a very, very large sample. And what, and what we ended up doing, I'm not going to go super far into the details of it, but we found a similar effect where women who were more fertile rated a... Um, of uh, a face, an angry male face that was cropped and described as belonging to a, um, or being convicted of a violent crime. Mm -hmm. We had them rate that face as well as a face of someone convicted of a nonviolent crime of, I believe, tax evasion and created a different score. So how much, how different are the two faces? And the two faces were actually quite equivalent aside from the little caption. Mm -hmm. For any methods nerds out there, of course, it was all fully counterbalanced and everything. But, but we found was that being more fertile did correlate with predicting a greater difference so that the, the violent criminal was bigger and stronger. And we also asked them questions about their fear of sexual assault. And we found that the effect was much bigger. There was an interaction where the effect was much stronger um, for those women who felt they were at high risk of sexual assault. So it, um, of course, is a social, is a very disturbing women, topic. Women but, that were ovulating. You mean. Yes. So, right, right. well, no, well we were, we were meeting up with or, women at all fertile. different phases of their cycle. Right. 
Hundreds. I believe the final sample was something like 700 women. But the ones that were fertile were the, showing a more well, the, dramatic? Well, we created a score to, to, to reflect how close to, to, to fertility they mm -hmm. were. And so this is a correlational kind of, of analysis. And we found the more fertile, um, the more you imagine this violent criminal is big and strong. But if you also are a person who is um, relatively more concerned with sexual assault, you think you're more likely to be a victim of sexual assault, you're more worried about it, then the effect was even much stronger. Mm. And that spoke to the meaning of it. In other words, oh, this, okay. seemed to be I, about, I this seemed to be about avoiding rape um, mm -hmm. um, in particular. And I mean, I think that's an important thing to know that women can do even that's uh, very amazing. Um, I would like to see the study replicated, of course, this is just one study. Um, but I also think from a theoretical point of view, the fact that here you've got something that they're quite unconscious of, but their body knows, mm -hmm. um, it's influencing any number of hormones and so on, interacting with an attitude about their society, about men, about their, their, the likelihood of them being, attacked and, and sexually assaulted is actually working with um, this, the, how, fer how fertile they are, to calibrate their judgment of the size and strength of this figure. Um, and so that's another example where the costs of a potential conflict mm. are calibrating this kind of crude size strength guesstimate in a very sophisticated way, in a, very, in a way that speaks to um, I would, I would argue, but of course, as an evolutionist, I'm, it's intuitive to me, but I would argue it speaks to something like design to help, um, to help women produce, uh, a judgment of, of this, in this way. Hmm. Um, so, so that's, those are two examples. And the, we started off with talking about threat and prejudice and a lot of my research actually doesn't involve the assessments of size and strength. So, but I guess um, well, just to, as we're uh, as we're finishing talking about size, I um, I'm curious what your take is, and this is a bit of a joke, but honestly, I'm curious. I I have a um, uh, one one very so I'm between six three and six four, um, and I have one of the very common things that I get after shows is that people will be like, oh, you're so much taller than I thought you were when you were standing on stage. Is this because, well, one, this is a good thing. This means women aren't looking at me as someone who is a, a, a going to sexually assault them or whatever. Hooray for me. Hmm. But also, it, do, does that have something to do with um, that I'm, you know, on stage you're having to be likable kind of and, yep. and agreeable, you know, like, Maybe not. Not I'm not like an insult comic. I I'd be curious to know if if people if they saw an insult comedian if they if they would come off as more formidable and judge them as being taller. If or you try to, you couldn't have come up with a better transition because this actually fits perfectly into the thing I was Good. just about to talk about, um, but in a way that I don't know how how well you'll take. Um, and I don't know what's in the minds or how to exactly read um, what you're reporting, which is people being surprised by your mm -hmm. by your um sort of imposing size in person um because your manner on stage or you know the way you're coming across leads them to envision you as smaller um but i would say that being on a stage is is a 
it's nice in terms of the research we've been discussing and that it's hard to get an accurate read. Yeah. Stages vary in size. You may be farther. They're at an odd angle often. Um, it's, it's, it's there. It gives you some perceptual ambiguity and that perceptual ambiguity leaves room for conceptual representations to sort of fill in and, and, and tweak their, in their mind, how big or strong or tall they think you are. Because I always imagine before talking with you that the, what was happening was just that everyone just has this average in their head. They see me on stage. They can't really figure it out from, you know, the perspective of the stage. So they're, they're just assuming that I'm of ha- average height. No, they, and they probably, and that's surprise. part of it. That's part of it right. for sure. And, and all of this research, you have to deal with the fact that people are um, referring to um, a baseline expectation mm-hmm. of the distribution of, of size and strength phenotypes in their society. So, you know, most people will, all things being equal, guess five, nine, right. Which is a, a, a good, uh, gamble, you know, mm. because that's the sort of average five, nine, five, 10. Um, but okay. So the reason I said this is a good transition, but possibly, um, possibly a painful one, uh, for you to hear is that there, I have thick skin. I, I've been, no, I know, but I, I'm I've very been, formidable. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so, um, I've been stressing the use of the mind, um, of, of representation of size and strength to understand threat and formidability. But what I haven't talked about is a whole other, um, parallel body of research, which is very interesting. Um, which I believe is tapping something very real, um, which is about using size and strength to represent prestige. Mm. And it seems to be the case that indeed people associate social status and relative standing. So you're with, saying it's because I'm bombing. That's what that's. that's I'm what saying that's saying. what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Don't blame the messenger. May, may, maybe those. So the people that don't that don't like my show are coming up, and that's the cop. Everyone else is like, "That was really funny," and then the people that don't like it are like, "You're taller than I expected because my prestige seemed lower." Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Look, let's. It's interesting. Let's look at it. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe that's what's going on. But hey, I'm not for everybody. But. I'm going to tell you a story. You can take it or leave it, but I'm going to tell you a story about why the mind might be doing those two things and mm-hmm. how they might interact sure. in a way that which possibly has a spin that could help you in this circumstance. Okay. Um, be a self-serving interpretation, which I will try to dish up to you. So, so, <laughs> so, okay. Why is it that? Please, please don't worry about my feelings. By the, by the way, I, I like exposing myself and making myself vulnerable for my audience. I know, so. but it's just, I it looks like you're about to cry. <laughs> so, um, okay. Okay. No, I'm not. It's I'm just not. a few tears. All right. right. Go so, on. um, I just sort of dropped, oh, by the way, there's this whole other literature showing that size and strength means something totally different. Yeah. You know, I would hope attentive listeners who are, you know, I don't know by now they're doing their laundry or whatever, but if they're paying attention, I hope that they suddenly got skeptical and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, what does it mean? Who is this guy? What is he he's saying? P.S. You've been telling me for what, half an hour size and strength is about threat and formidability. Oh, yeah, but other people find it's about prestige. Well, which is it? Mm. You know, pick a side, man. We're at war. Or, you know, what, how do we reconcile this? And I w- was very interested in t- trying to theoretically approach how it is that this that this same sort of dimensions of size, um, and most of this research to look at size, some of the newer research, they're also looking at muscularity. How is it that the mind could be using the same sort of format for two quite different things? Um, because in humans, uh, status appears to break down into two sort of ideals. 
which in real life are usually intermingled. But one of those ideals is often referred to as prestige-based status, which is about skills, knowledge, um, uh, and it's and it's uh, it's given to people willingly by others who want the benefit of those skills and knowledge. So you see someone who's really good at something. It could be a musician. Maybe they know they're an excellent fisherman or they know how to make something with a tool or, or they're Stephen Hawking, you know, and a modern example. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Stephen Hawking is not physically able to hurt you because he has a physical disability in no way impinges uh, the prestige that you assign to him because he's got tremendous knowledge and skill. Um, on the other hand, there's a dominance-based status, which sounds a lot more like what we've been talking about with regard to formidability. This dominance-based status is different in that it's often coercive. So the dominant member of the group is often the the person who will inflict physical costs on you if you don't accede to their wishes. So this is, we're thinking now of sort of an alpha male in Mm. sort of a colloquial way. And throughout uh, our species, you know, and related species histories, and and, and if you look across taxa at social animals, you see that where there is social hierarchy, it almost, it's basically equates to dominance hierarchies. The bigger, stronger, all things being equal, um, uh, the individual will have the most status Mm. because they can enforce it. Through right. physically or through the threat of violence. Often they don't actually have to do it because they can do it and you know it. And that's quite different than prestige. But in the world that we actually live in, these two sort of ideals, we see them often coincide and commingle. And that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view. And by that, I mean, prestigious people, we often also think of them in terms of words like power or their ability so even say a prestigious professor has the ability to write a scathing review mm. or to give a student a bad grade, or they have the ability to inflict costs. And in some sense, part of their status often derives from their um, ability to be dominant or to um, say, win an argument in a extremely cutting and forceful manner and so on. And this looks like in homo sapiens, this ancient sort of dominant psychology has been reworked and is playing out to do something new. I'm not saying that prestige really is just dominance. It's not. But I'm saying that prestige appears to have been built out of dominance. And in fact, I can't think of another plausible trajectory by which it could have emerged. Do you know what I mean? Because you you have a status psychology rooted in dominance from an evolutionary point of view. So animals have an ability to, you know, very capably assess relative rank. Mm -hmm. This relative rank is closely related to size and strength, an ability to to inflict harm. Now, at some point um, along our lineage, we we start developing, and through gene culture evolution and complex interactions, I'm sure, we start developing prestige status within human societies, which actually are quite different they all usually they involve being cooperative they sort of they would punish a truly dominant actor who tried to just be a bully and boss everyone around the town would gang up on him Mm -hmm. they wouldn't stand for it right and you end up with a new form of status but 
natural selection can only happen by modifying existing traits and characteristics. And um, it's been so often said, but it's worth saying, you know, in a tinkering kind of fashion. Mm. So by tweaking and remixing this dominant psychology, we create a new psychology, which is, which is genuinely different in that um, it can be about, you know, granting respect and, 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 and standing in society to those who have skills and knowledge and so on, who are cooperative and pro-social, but which still can retains elements of dominance. And that is why I think prestige, even when it's quite divorced from the capacity to do violence, still uses the same representational format of size and strength. But doesn't prestige also, wouldn't that necessarily mean that you have more allies on your side? So this is now not just a one-on-one fight anymore. And, and also if you, it would, yeah. if you have prestige, possibly, I mean, this is, uh, maybe you're not just worried about their allies, but maybe you want to be one of their allies because you can attach yourself to this higher status. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's a number, that's a, it's a whole different set of questions about right. how, how does, uh, what are the, the, the factors that, that contribute to how we strategically negotiate mm-hmm. through society to form, you know, advantageous relationships and advance up a, a rungs of a status ladder in one society and so on. That's not, that's not what I'm concerned with now. I'm just, I'm just saying, this kind of riddle of how is it that prestige can, can seem to be represented in terms of size and strength. How does, how do you reconcile that with the fact that size and strength are also used to represent threat? Because let's look at it. And it's a stupid example. We've shown all a bunch of our research. We've got terrorists are seen as big and strong and we've got violent criminals are seen as big and strong. Certainly it's not the case that these, these individuals in these studies are also thought of as high status or as prestigious. No way. Mm. It's doing something different. And in fact, just to make sure of that, in a couple of studies we asked. And no, as you would expect, it wasn't exactly headline news. They were big and strong, but low in status and in the minds of our participants. So in, 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 in contexts in which you have a, just a violent actor, it's not about their prestige. Um, there are lots of circumstances where they, those two could uh, coincide, but it's also the case that size and strength doesn't have to mean one or the other. But I'm making the argument that the prestige psychology is built on the status psychology. And I'll try to prove it to you by giving an example about racial prejudice, okay. which is a recent study. Um, so, and this study was actually motivated by the, first by the Trayvon Martin killing, and then by the increasing, it seems like exponentially almost increasing number of deaths of, of young black men or sometimes older black men, um, at the hands of, um, typically authority figures, authority figures and others. Um, and, and the fact that often ironically, it's the case that they are, um, the killing is justified in terms of the threat attributed to the person who died. Um, and I think in the case of Trayvon Martin, the fact that in the, in the court case, they used the fact that he had access to the cement as a weapon yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that sort of leavened the choice of his, of his, uh, killer to, 
to shoot him. Well, well, they were both armed. I mean, yeah, Trayvon what choice had, did he have? He had access yeah. to gravity and cement <laughs> yeah. and Twizzlers. Right, right. right. Um, and, and this uh, sort of on a personal level like, got me really thinking about this tragedy and this how it keeps playing out over and over again. And I won't say it's an epidemic that's increasing. I think that it's awareness of it that's increasing. I yeah. think this has been ongoing. I would agree with that. Um, it might, it may even be decreasing as we are becoming more mindful of it, but we're also, uh, uh, how aware we're becoming of it is, is right. Is escalating quickly. I would say. Well, I hope so. I, I don't know about the, about the, the stats on that, yeah, but I, you neither. Know, I, I sure hope so. But, uh, so sometimes speculate on this program. <laughs> right. So, so, so that's on a personal level. Um, right. on a theoretical level though, I was at the same time really trying to rec- to, to think about this interaction between prestige and threat. And that size and strength seem to be representing both. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, well, what determines that? And how does, is there sort of a shared resource within the mind that's, that's coming to play in one context or another, depending on who you're thinking about, depending on what the social circumstances are and so on. And I wanted to get a better grip on the deployment of size and strength to mean different things. Um, and so between just, you know, looking at the news and my newsfeed and so on with regards to all of these uh, terrible acts of violence against black men and 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 being concerned with this issue of size, strength, threat and prestige. It just occurred to me to put these things together. Um, and so in a series of studies, what we did was we asked people to read about a sort of ordinary person. And then we had them rate their size, strength, physical aggression and violence and social status and prestige. Mm. And they did all of these things. And, but the one thing that we manipulated was the name of the character. We drew from pre-existing work, the names of that were prototypically associated with white versus black men. And as a, as a somewhat subtle way of cueing their race without coming out and saying it. Mm-hmm. So we would say, um, you know, Jamal wakes up in the morning, right. takes a shower, brushes his teeth, calls his friends, does these things. Or Connor. Mm-hmm. I don't have to tell you which one is black and which one is white. Um, actually, one of the names that was on the top 10 was Colin, but I decided that would be too strange. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't want to insert myself into this, um, into this research in that way. So what we found was what we predicted, which was that if the name belonged to a white character like Wyatt, um, Wyatt was imagined as uh, physically smaller than Jamal or Darnell. Mm. And that might not seem too surprising because there are stereotypes of black men as being um, really big. Mm. The demographics actually don't bear that out. Um, when you look at the national um, averages, black and white men are both about 5'10", and they both weigh about the same. Oh, really? Um, yeah, people are always surprised to hear I, that. Though. I was it, actually surprised to hear that as well. Well, don't worry. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean you're harboring... Well, I'm sure you are harboring a racist bias um, because we Well, all it was are, racist but, uh, in the fact that, yeah. that I thought they were like better at sports. and like, well, well, it, was, it wasn't in a negative way. That's the thing. You, you, can, you can chalk that up to uh, the fact that there's overrepresentation in sports like basketball right, and football right. and boxing of and so on for historical reasons. Um, so, and for that reason, and another set of studies that were closely parallel, we mm-hmm. looked at different groups that also um, are about the same height, in this case, five, seven or, or so on average, which was Latino men and East Asian men. And 
which also has the advantage that Latino men don't have the same prevalent stereotype of being big and strong or of they're not overrepresented in sports. So it's like a control comparison mm -hmm. because just to see that, that the effects that you see comparing white and black uh, characters aren't um, unique only to those two characters. Right. Because unfortunately, as we know, um, not to the same severe extent as black men are derogated as violent, uh, Latino men share a similar stereotype. Right. Um, and there's a lot of research showing this, that there's an explicit and an implicit violence association with Latino men uh, more so than Asian men and also with black men more so than white men, of course. Right. And so, uh, so the overall pattern that we found, I'm going to say it a little bit slowly and then talk about what it all means. So, the black or Latino character is imagined to be bigger and stronger, mm -hmm. but they're imagined to be lower in status, showing that when people, and our sample was predominantly, uh, we took a political measure, they were a little left of center, just a little. So these aren't, these are people that are tending a bit more towards the progressive side, mm -hmm. somewhat moderate. And nevertheless, which is associated with goals of, um, you know, social justice and equality and so on. But nevertheless, just by uh, changing the name of the character, they would automatically imagine this person to be um, bigger and stronger, lower in status and more violent. Mm. Just be, just based on the name. Mm -hmm. But then if you go a little further into it, you see some other interesting patterns, which is the the characters with white names there was no relationship between how violent they were in their status. So they could be, Wyatt can have a temper, Connor can throw things or punch people sometimes. And it doesn't really limit the status he's imagined to hold, the prestige he's imagined to hold. Hmm. As, it's not a strong connection. If um, Jorge or... Jamal or Darnell or one of the characters from the black or Latino names um, has any kind of inclination towards a temper of a propensity for violence. It's completely antithetical to the prestige in a really steep negative correlation. So it's like um, they can't have both of those things at the same time. And the only way to interpret that, I think, is that when people are imagining a white or Asian, East Asian named person, at default, they're not coming to the moment they read about them. They don't invoke a threat psychology. Mm -hmm. This person is not particularly threatening. And so then when you're asked, well, how, how much of a temper does he have? And so on. Well, first of all, they don't rate him as having as much of a temper, but then even at the level of correlations, it's like, Oh, you asked me how bad is his temper? Oh, I'll give him a four. You know, you asked me what his prestige is. Oh, I'll give him a six. I'm simplifying the measures. They were actually kind of complicated, but, but, but they were unrelated. Mm -hmm. But when you, but when they were were um, asked to think deeply about these uh, these characters with black or Latino names, uh, typical black or Latino names, uh, they there there was a strong connection where it was like a teeter totter, and you couldn't imagine them as prestigious if they were violent, mm. and it, which which to me speaks to toggling something like when our participants were thinking about people from groups that they stereotype as violent, they couldn't be, they could only be threatening. They couldn't be prestigious too. When they were thinking about white or Asian men, they could, 
they could, uh, there wasn't nearly so much of a tension. They could kind of be both or they could be one, one didn't interfere with the other to the same extent when you looked at the pattern of correlations. Do you, do you think that it's possible that if you think about a white or an Asian and you tell someone like, so, so this white or an Asian person um, was temperamental or something like that, um, or hit somebody or something. Do you think that in people's minds, maybe they're thinking, well, maybe it was warranted the way they, they did it. We didn't, people have looked, other researchers have looked at questions like that and they Mm. have found data that are consistent with that. Um, we actually never described the person as doing anything like that. Mm. Um, we never described them as particularly violent. Uh, we described them as that they go to us, they're with, so a few friends at a social setting and a stranger bumps into them very rudely and, and, uh, and calls them an asshole. That was mm. what it actually said in the, okay. in the text. I don't know if this is a family podcast, but no, um, that, that seemed like an um, ecologically valid, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that someone might really say. Mm. And then, then we asked them not only about their sort of personality, how temperamental and violent they were normally, but how likely they'd be to fight that person. Mm. Okay. But we never described them as starting anything or, uh, but in that sense, what you said might play in because they might imagine, they might infer that somehow the person was more asking for it in some way, but it certainly wasn't, that would be something that they brought to it based on their, their stereotype of threat that they attributed to that group. Um, so then in a follow-up study, the question was, well, can we get rid of this racist kind of or racial bias, I should say, um, based on race category? by providing tons of information. So in the first case, we just asked, you know, about a, a, a sort of boring person. They, they get up, they brush their teeth, they watch some TV, they go to the store, nothing much happens. Mm-hmm. And the second time we described um, very prestigious people or very um, dangerous, violent, kind of crazy people. And when we did that, we found some interesting things. Um, for the most part, the, di- the, the differences based on race went away, kind of an eracism kind of effect, which was um, interesting to see as a scientist and nice to see as a, as a person. That Because what it tells you is that by providing explicit information about the prestige or danger the person poses, our participants will take that on board mm. and evaluate this individual based on this individuating information, not based on their group. Mm-hmm. So Connor is bigger and stronger and less prestigious if he's like a ex-con. Um, and um, Darnell is bigger and stronger and less violent and more prestigious mm. if he is um, a successful entrepreneur who's got a lot of clout in his community and he's highly educated and went to Harvard. We poured it on. Mm. Um, and so that, and that was also interesting in that it showed that size and strength really could mean something very different. Mm-hmm. depending on the context and that there's some mechanism within the mind that's able to, uh, uh, basically toggle which function size and strength representations serve, mm. um, depending on who they're looking at and what they think of them and what they know about them. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I, uh, I, we need to start wrapping up here because you have to go and, um, protect your child and go and pick him up. Um, so I don't want to run over and prime too many of those effects. Um, so as we wrap up here, um, I have uh, my guest 
or guests each week name a charity of their choice. Um, and uh, so, so what charity or nonprofit would you like to plug? I would like to plug the Center for Constitutional Rights, which is a nonprofit a legal group that advocates to protect civil liberties in the United States and around the world. But their potential, so they're especially um, animated to defend, you know, our constitution. Mm. Um, and I think the reason I picked this is one, because I think it's a really important um, and sort of valiant um, group of people, but also because what my research reinforces, and we only, we actually only scratch the surface. Um, I've, a lot of my other research involves how being threatened leads you to become more um, prejudiced and parochial about your own group and kind of circle the wagons. Mm-hmm. And ever, you know, in the last 15, 16 years in our country, we have seen this unending seeming war on terror. And yeah, 9-11 kind of, happens. Everyone right. puts the American flags out. And... That happens, but also you see, you know, increased derogation of outgroups, certainly mm-hmm. Islamophobia, um, and also willingness to abandon civil liberties. There are things that are going on now which had, you know, George W. Bush had policies with regards to, um, you know, in, invading people's, you know, personal records and so on. Um, there'd be, you know, there would have been a lot more pushback, right. but I think we've sort of frog and watered it where we're so used to this kind of incremental, um, giving up of, of rights that used to be really, um, core parts of our identities as Americans. Um, and I, and I think people we're, make we're a, boiling our rights, right? We're boiling them right away been conditioned. and, and people I believe have, um, both consciously and unconsciously, unconsciously made a decision that it's worth it to be safe, hmm. which would be a defensible position if it were true. Right. And, but it's not clear that it is true that a lot of these, um, uh, invasions of civil liberties are promoting safety. And there's some reason to think they might in some situations be, um, detracting from safety. So, for that reason, uh, because I, I want not only as a scientist to understand the in, impact of threat on our social judgments and values and biases, but also as a, you know, a, a person, I'm concerned about right. how the threatened brain um, leads us to um, accept things that perhaps aren't helpful or rational. Yeah. So I actually thought we were going to get way, way, way deeper into that uh, today, but we, we ended up having, uh, filled our time with, um, a whole bunch of, uh, we should just do this again sometime. Well, sure. And I have a website, uh, Colin for the interested reader to uh, check out any number of papers that somehow found their way up there. And listeners can always, of course, go to the, here we are podcast, dot com website and there will be a link to Colin's work and there will be a link to what was the organization the yeah. center for constitutional rights great and just wrapping up here uh, just because I'm I'm curious I'm I I always have to make things about me um, this is but uh, you just got me thinking and it's something that I want to be mindful of. Um, going forward, I'm going to do a little research on my own when we were talking about my size on stage. Right. So, so I do, I do two different shows now. And I think that oftentimes, um, people don't know that like people, people think that I just go on stage and just tell funny stories or like come up with stuff off the top of my head. So I'm not sure that 
um, it's always the best advertisement of skills or knowledge. People think just like comedy is this magical thing and people either have or they don't. They don't often recognize the hard the work that's been yeah. in the craft of it. Um, but then I have another separate show where the craft is very clear. It's very science based. The writing is uh, challenging. And um, and I'm I'm curious if. Looking for, I'm going to be paying more attention to how often I get that comment about how tall I am after shows, whether the one where I have definitely, I have a show where I would come off as more prestigious and more showing of skill. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see if that's going to change my size. You know, you don't have to get letters after your name to be able to conduct research. Um, I, I, I would encourage you. It would probably to. be a really interesting part of the show for people if you bring some uh, packets and, you know, have them guess. Yeah, have yeah. Them, have them oh, make these a good idea. Yeah. It'll be anonymous. So, you know, say how you, what you really think. I'm not going to. And you could compare. You could compare performances, compare whatever you like. Yeah. I, yeah. I would if you want. I would even be willing to, to give you feedback on that if you wanted. Yeah, that might be fun. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Colin Holmbrook, for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, let's do it again sometime. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening and being such curious, inquisitive, enthusiastic folks. Talk to you next week. Thank you all for listening. Uh, next week on the program is going to be uh, a fun one. It's going to actually be Colin's wife, uh, Jennifer Han Holbrook. Uh, we almost did um, the episode with them together because those are sometimes fun, and who knows, maybe we'll even do that in the future. But um, but they they do their work is is different enough, and um, and it makes it easier for me when whenever I can get more podcasts in the bank. So doing them separately, maybe together in a future episode. Who knows? Um, so. Tune in next week uh, for that. She is um, in the Department of, of Psychology at the Crean College of Health and Behavioral Science, Sciences. I haven't done the interview yet, so I'm not entirely sure what we're going to be talking about just yet. But, um, you know, they're always good. So, you know that by now. Um, oh, speaking of... So the the other show that I mentioned in in uh, during with Colin, the other show that's better and more prestigious or whatever, is my psychedelic show. It's um, it's the best stand up that I've ever put together, in my opinion. And people that uh, that see it go crazy for it. Um, so if you ever go to my website at Shane Moss M A U S S dot com, you can um, you can check my schedule, which. I have lots more work in the books than is on the schedule. It's just that a lot of times it takes forever for whatever club to put up the the ticket links or whatever. So I don't bother advertising until I have the tickets available because it's just saves me time that way. Um, but uh, so always check in on that um, from time to time. I uh, um, There's some rumors that maybe I'll be doing a mini city tour with that show in the fall. So, um, uh, you know, if you follow me on Facebook, that's a pretty good way to keep up. Um, I, I usually post lots of new things on there and just check my uh, website once in a while coming up. I'm going to be doing that show, a good trip, um, in, uh, in Humboldt, California, 
Um, and I'm also doing it in San Francisco. Man, I haven't been to San Francisco for years. I'm actually in San Francisco in July. I'm doing both my psych my psychedelic show one night and then my regular stand up act the following night. So any of you hardcore Shane Moss fans out there can get a whole lot more of me. You can get your fill. Um, and so so check that out uh, coming up. I'll be doing it in Indianapolis along with regular shows, um, San Antonio, Lafayette, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, um, Austin. I'm definitely doing my regular show in Austin. I'm going to see if they want to do the psychedelic. I already did the psychedelic show there um, earlier this year, so they may not. Uh, might might just be the regular show, but anyway, um, that's still good. still fun. Um, but yeah, if you're a listener to this podcast, you want to check out my psychedelic show because I get a lot of science in there and it's, it's way, way more like thoughtful, interesting, thought provoking material. And my, my regular show at the moment is like, uh, just funny stories and stuff like that. So, um, it doesn't have to be all science all the time. So, um, yeah, that's about it. You guys are so wonderful, especially the ones that listen all the way to the end. Uh, you know, you're my favorite. So I'll uh, talk to you next week. Say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Well, Mister Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mister Seinfeld, I'd love having you. Oh,